0: Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of the Apollo 13 Minute and the Rocketeer Minute. And I'm Hal Bryan
1: of the Rocketeer Minute.
2: And I'm Chris Henry from the Apollo 13 Minute.
1: And Jim O'Kane is our professional common denominator.
2: He is. He is. He's kind of like the girl that we both dated, <laughs> and yet we've
1: we've both uh, since
0: moved on. Yeah. You're Wait, you're no. you're among my souvenirs. That yes, guys. yes. <laughs> wow. But we're we're back we're back on board a B seventeen, um, or the front of a B seventeen, the, the largest B seventeen nose ever built. Um, <laughs> But it's uh This is a. This is kind of a almost dialogue free episode. But we're getting the last of the exposition out of the way here by having a. Uh, uh, Al Stevenson is talking about. Well, Al and, and Fred are both talking about. Uh, Homer's girl that he left behind, uh, uh, Wilma, and just uh, Al kind of hammers it in that yeah, that's her name, Wilma. Don't forget, Wilma is the one that's going out with Homer. So, right. yeah, um, so you've got to
1: get the, dramatis personae laid out, uh, yeah. laid out up front because the 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 cast is going to get bigger soon
0: yeah yeah it's it, we're going to have a lot of intros coming up shortly so uh it, it's uh it, you know and but it's still subtle it's still subtle and also explaining the tension that uh you know Fred mentioned earlier well in last last week's show uh Fred mentioned that uh well, I'm sure that Wilma's a swell girl and you'll get along fine kid um you know Al being uh, he's no spring chicken he knows not everything is wonderful, and uh, you know he just hopes that Wilma is a swell girl.
1: Uh, yeah, and we're all uh, you know we're all looking at uh, at uh, Homer and rooting for him. Because yeah. Yeah. It's it it's tough, you know. I don't uh, you know I don't presume to know, but you would think. Somewhere in his mind, uh, he's saying, "You know, I don't want special treatment. Don't root harder for me because I've lost my hands." But, you know, you can't. Uh, it's human nature. You can't help it. You think, "Okay, this guy's been through enough. He yeah. needs a nice, easy homecoming," and uh, and Wilma better be a swell girl, or uh, you know, there's going to be trouble.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, he 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 went out and saved the world for her, so she be- she better appreciate it very much. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. Wow. Well, let's talk a little bit about Harold Russell. He's just a fascinating human being. Besides being, you know, this being his, well, technically his second movie, but his first feature film, he was in a, he he was in an instructional video or film uh, called uh, Diary of a Sergeant, where it explains how he lost his hands and what was done for him so that he could uh, be, as we said yesterday, rehabilitated uh, to get back in the world and do things like put dimes in the, or nickels in the Phone booth in you know in in a payphone or be able to operate a record player and things like that, or you could put
1: coins in one of those chairs in the mall.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But they don't make change. They don't
1: make change.
0: Yeah, Uh, fascinating. But sorry, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, if you can get through Diary of a Sergeant without getting uh, without getting choked up or or at least just being utterly and completely humbled, uh, then then you know check yourself for a pulse. Yeah, that yeah. is uh, that is amazing, and that is of course you're you're very much straight ahead, uh, in the style of the day, you know, good honest army uh, sort of propaganda film, and I mean that in a in an honest and good way, but uh, you you can't escape the reality of it that you're looking at somebody who's who's lost these hands and he's figuring out how to adapt and how to uh, how to make it work, and then for for Harold Russell to then go back and as an actor, and Sort of go through that again, uh, to relive that uh, some of those experiences, is just mind blowing.
0: Yeah, it's a it it's it's hard. I mean, in in real life, as they mention in uh, Diary of a Sergeant, he was a he was an instructor, an explosive instructor in North Carolina, and uh, there was just he had a bad fuse, and the fuse uh, it blew up a half a pound of dynamite in his hands, oh, and it was shredded and uh and this happened uh, just as it says in the in the diary of a sergeant uh this happened on d day he was training and ex- instructing people on d-day so he lost his hands on d-day he was in north carolina he wasn't on the beaches at normandy but you know he was in the service of his country and uh you know uh, three months of rehabilitation followed where he had to learn how to use the uh, at the at the time they were you know the latest technology of using hooks where mm-hmm. you you operate the hooks by basically shrugging your shoulders to get the, uh, the hooks to open and close and timing that with the mo- motion of your elbows.
1: You know, it was, it was uh, something my wife and I were talking about, because I think when she and I re-watched this movie, I think it was the first time she'd seen it. And, uh-huh. you know, you could tell she, she keeps looking. And, and Weiler, uh, sorry, sorry for any spoilers, everybody, but Weiler makes a, uh, an interesting choice in that we don't see uh, Harold Russell in short sleeves for quite a while. Yeah, and so you look and you think, wow, he's doing a really good job of kind of pulling his real hand up inside the sleeve and then working these little hook pincer things, and then you know uh, only yeah. when the time is right.
0: Yeah, the do Dino-Moz, we see him?
1: Do we see him uh, shirtless or you know in a, a equivalent of a tank top, um, and then of course removing the uh, the artificial hands, and then you realize. These little things, uh, again, apologies, spoilers, not to jump ahead, but I i don't think that's one of our minutes when he's at home and the hands are off, and somebody, I won't spoil it, is there to visit him, and that person leaves the room. And my wife and I say, Don't close the door, don't close the door. Because if you close the door, the poor guy's trapped. Wow. Because yeah. he can't put his hands on himself. Yeah. So you know, if he was just missing one, he could he he could do just fine. And then once the once his artificial hands are off, he can't do something as simple as turn a doorknob.
0: Jeez. And it
1: just kicks you right in the gut.
0: Yeah, it it's so it it, it and yeah, I I do think that Weiler's choice in that in in keeping that from you because you're thinking, well, this is Hollywood. It's probably some guy with you know his hands tied behind his back, and and he's working. You know, they have a pro, a prop guy running his running his hooks for him, and they're just shooting around it. But the the reality that yeah this is a real vet and this is really where he's at um, and and Russell being fine with it you know he was fine with explaining this and um, there's a there's a book that he wrote about like three or four years after he wrote after he made this movie it was called uh, Victory in My Hands and um, he talks about how he you know he was offered other roles in Hollywood movies but. He didn't want to do that. He said, "I've, I've, I've explained, you know, I've shown the role of veterans, and but I want to help people. I want to be um, a a part of the, you know, I want to be more of an active participant, and I don't want to be a movie star." And he got involved heavily with uh, the Disabled American Veterans, and became their president for many years. And you know, the idea of being an advocate of. Uh, you know and being a very famous popular advocate uh he really used his position from this movie to a springboard into helping so many other vets who were in similar circumstances as he was um just a just an amazing life uh that this this man had and he it's funny he would return to the um to the motion picture screens uh years later with inside moves if you ever saw the john voight movie he's one of the, the guys at the bar oh that's right and uh you know seeing him seeing him doing a a role where he was you know playing another disabled vet in a bar full of disabled vets um the perfect casting for that and uh, apparently he was up for it so that's a, a nice uh, uh coda to his uh film career it's
1: you know it's one thing to uh, to find it within yourself to find that uh, fortitude to sort of go on with your life after something as You know, it's just impossible to imagine this is, you know, losing something like a hand, losing both your hands. Um, But then figuring, okay, I'm going to live my life and, you know, do this and do that. But then to uh, to also have the have the strength to to step forward and be public about the struggle, you know, first to to effectively play himself in the diary of a sergeant to then go. And take on the role in this this amazing movie, um, to revisit those roles, to take that leadership position for the disabled American veterans, uh, to be right out there. When, you know, I I look at my own life, and I I don't know that I would have the guts to do that. I like to think, okay, I would, you know, I wouldn't just give up. You know, you'd find a way to make it sort of work day to day. And uh, but I I don't honestly know if I'd have the guts to sort of. Stand up in front of everybody, and, uh, and and say, you know, this is what happened. This is what my life is like, and he, how can we help other people who are in the same position?
0: Yeah, um, and not, you know, he he's not he's not doing it to be pitied. He's doing it to say, look, I can I can do these I, I can do these things, and I have these are my issues in my life, and if you can you know if you can deal with the issues that I need help with, then that that's a great thing. Um, I, I, I'm looking. we were talking yesterday about the uh, ruptured duck, and the more I look at the uh, 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 Homer's wearing the same insignia that uh, Al has on, so I'm really considering that the uh, the honorable discharge there, the ruptured duck, is probably they all got handed it as they were leaving whatever base or ship they were on, and it's like <laughs> here you go, and they just okay, I'll just stick it up here, yep. <laughs> one
1: per person, please. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, please. <laughs>
0: uh a uh, great great bit of um it, uh, we've talked about this on both both of the shows i've been on with you guys uh there's a great uh, this scene here which is mostly silent as we watch the sun the sun coming up uh out the at the side of the b17 we're looking at homer looking ahead and there's he's not saying anything he has his face is basically expressionless he's a little bleary eyed and maybe there's it could be a tear it just could be just his. he just woke up Um, but, uh, Weiler is relying on something called the Kuleshov effect, uh, where if you see, if you hear something in a movie and you see something in a movie, you assume that the person that is on screen is experiencing the same thing you are. So you see, uh, Homer here and he's looking out ahead and you're thinking about all the script that had just gone on about, well, I hope she's a swell girl. Maybe, you know, Homer is doing it. He's not saying any of that, but we, we're, we've we just been kind of thrust into his mind as these are probably things he's thinking about. So the audience gets to empathize with, with Homer and also project their own feelings about Homer and his life to come, just by showing a guy on a screen expressionless. We The audience provides the emotion there.
1: Um, and it, it is so powerful because we're sitting here right now, we haven't met Wilma yet, but we are holding her to a very high standard. Yeah. and. <laughs> And, you know, we are saying to ourselves, boy, you know, be swell, (laughs) Wilma. And and the other thing during that whole sequence that you pointed out, Jim, is those, it it struck me, um, you know, it's it's black and white, so we don't get that glorious uh, color of the sunrise or anything like that. But, you know, looking out, we're above one cloud deck, and there's some clouds around, and the sun coming up, and we can imagine how, how beautiful that was. And even look, it does look beautiful, even in black and white. But think about how many people who, seeing this movie uh, when it came out, who had never seen that view. How many people had never been on an airliner? And, you know, by 1946, it was obviously getting more common. But a lot of people had never seen that view in person. Yeah. And wouldn't have any idea what it would look like. So just that short, you know, kind of shaky POV uh, look out of the cockpit of the, the sun and the clouds had to really, really hit hard. Uh, to somebody who'd never had that vantage point and, and, you know, good credit to Weiler for for using it and for, as you said, for letting Homer just sit there expressionless while we sort through these emotions as the audience.
0: Yeah, I I do have a question. As as the only member of this group here that has not flown in a B-17, let alone overnight... what is what is the operational range of flying without refueling uh, can you fly overnight or how far can you go on a you know fully tanked up uh, b17
2: so so hours you know time wise um i i'd have to look up as far as like range and miles but uh hours wise i mean you're stretching it at about 10 to 12 hours um that if you've got a b17 that's lightened up um i mean there are missions in world war two that went as long as 10 hours. Um, yeah. this aircraft, you know, it's interesting as we're sitting here talking. I happen to look it up, and I was looking at a, an image of the nose, and it's a B 17E nose, it's an Echo uh model uh that they use for this scene. So, kind of interesting when you're looking at the nose, you can see that it has a whole bunch of more framework and everything like that on it, and uh, it kind of adds to the uh authenticity of that. But yeah, I mean, if you took off in the evening, you certainly could fly overnight and arrive early morning somewhere uh which is uh what you see here but uh but that's kind of cool that they used a 17 e that's kind of kind of a neat little uh detail there
0: would that would that have been more uh used in uh the early part of the war i mean we i'm assuming that the yeah and the g would have been
2: the E's were early uh they used them a lot in the pacific Uh they did use them early on in the european theater but uh you know, just like uh, you would expect, F and uh, G models, of course, took over. So the E, uh, you know, would have been a sort of a war weary airplane, which is, I think, what they're trying to depict. That this airplane's probably going to the boneyard. Um, yeah, right. You know, well, in so, Boone
0: City,
1: whereas, well, we'll, well, exactly. Talk about that yeah, future, as we yeah, see it's... later in the later in the film. Yeah, and yeah, that's a great point that an E model at this point, uh, I would say, at this point in the war, war is over, but. You know, would have been if it was still flying. It would have been sort of relegated to you know maybe some of these these uh, short ferry hops and things like this. And, yeah, like spare yeah. parts and, kind of thing. Yeah, have... and it's is clearly, you know, its days are clearly numbered. It's yeah. uh, This airplane yeah. has a future as knives and forks. Yeah. What
0: uh, what is their cruise speed? I don't know what the if they're at if they're at altitude, are they
2: going like about two two twenty or so? Or I don't know. I, I, I think that's right. I'm going to cheat and look it up to be honest, <laughs> and uh, I'll let you know. 182 right. miles an hour is the cruise speed. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And top speed's 287 miles an hour, and it's got a 2,000 mile range. Yeah, I don't think they're going at an r- emergency
0: war speed. So it's yeah. <laughs> right.
2: Thank you, Google.
0: <laughs> Thank yeah. you,
1: Google. Of course, that's going to vary so much based on the load. Yeah. Uh, based yeah. Based on the bomb load, and have they, you know, have they released their bombs, and how many, you know, how many crew are on board, and yeah. And, and yeah, of course, the the needs of the mission.
0: The other thing that I just wanted, I mean, we're going to get into more things where they're where they're talking about moving around on the ship, but having three guys in the nose and they're talking about, you know, wandering around, how does that, isn't that going to affect your trim a lot? Or I guess, I, I don't know how. So, it, it,
1: <clears throat> You know, on, on an airplane as heavy as the B-17, um, I really, I, unless, if you've got, you know a, a full complement of of you know crew of, of 10 and you know the other the other nine guys like all just run back to the tail <laughs> and bunch up together back there you're going to feel it but as far as yeah you know when you're talking about this airplane that, that can carry you know thousands and thousands of pounds of bombs a 170 pound person sort of moving back and forth isn't going to have much effect okay. um the the closest i've come uh, as a pilot i mean i, I not to, uh, not to brag, but it is oh, one of go the best ahead. things I've ever done. I do have some time left seat in a B-17. And, you know, people are moving around, but honestly, that airplane is so solid and so heavy. You feel like somebody could be driving a Sherman tank back and forth in the back, and it wouldn't affect it. Um, I have flown an airplane uh, when skydivers departed. I've flown a wow. Cessna caravan a couple of times when that happened. And that's an airplane where you've got, you do have, you've got 13 people sort of bunched up behind you. And they would tend to jump out in pairs, and that's a a much much smaller airplane than a b seventeen um, you know that I can tell you that as people leave, you definitely you feel it in the controls and you're retrimming the airplane every time another pair of people get out. You know we're very used to as we fly making trim adjustments because the airplane is uh, every airplane you fly is constantly getting lighter as you burn off gas. But it's strange to have that happen, you know, three, four hundred pounds at a time as people as people say, I, I don't like your flying. I'm getting out. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, something as as big and as solid, I I just don't know how else to describe the the feel of the controls of a B-17. It's just um, it's,
0: yeah, it's like it, it's like having canaries flying around inside. Isn't that it it's, yeah, it really really well. what it would be? I've got to point out something in if if you're watching this minute around uh, the thir- like around twenty nine through thirty five or so behind Al Stevenson on the back wall. it this bothers me. I, I know it I know it's just me and Gestalt and stuff looking at the wall. but I could swear there is a vHS cassette leaning up against the window. And it, just, <laughs> it just looks to me like, wait a minute. <laughs> that's, that's an anomaly, but yeah you know,
1: see, and what bothered me was uh, how much time Homer spends texting. Uh, this is yeah, their, you know, know it's really tired flight. I thought that was just, really yeah. out of place or 1940 you know, <laughs> put the iPhone yeah. down and yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Wilma will yeah. be there when you get back. Yeah, he's just, <laughs> but, uh, playing Animal
0: Crossing on his Switch yeah, or exactly. something. Yeah. Yep. Just, uh, so, you but, know, uh, not
1: to not to go too far afield I know we're we're up against the clock, but very quickly. That is something that maybe we'll revisit that uh, tomorrow uh, or in future minutes. But that's something that is really really hard for people to think about even guys uh, who are our age, or at least our age, Jim and and, and Chris, you're not that far behind, we at least remember the days before smartphones and before the internet and everything else. And these guys are coming home to a world that they've communicated to by letters yeah. that that might take months and months to get there, if they ever get there, and they might all show up at once. And and, uh, in fact, the communications thing becomes an important uh, plot point. Yeah. Once they get back, and uh, when uh, when Fred is uh, is trying to, to reconnect uh, with his family.
0: Yeah, I, I'll tell a story tomorrow about uh, some letters with my dad and um, about about the communication gap and, and things going on. But we'll we'll, we'll chat about that tomorrow. Right. Um, but it, this, let's let's pause here and we'll we'll come back to uh, this, this beautiful B seventeen E making making its last journey <laughs> home with with, the, with these guys making their last journey home uh anyway thanks thanks for listening to us today we'll be back tomorrow with uh with some more stuff uh just to just a gentle reminder that uh the best years of our lives is available on uh spotify and apple podcasts and a bunch of other ones if you you know if if you have if wherever you found this go back there sign up for uh, get a subscription and uh just mash that subscribe button and you can get us hot and fresh mondays through fridays to, to listen to this show we've got a lot of great episodes coming up with a lot of great hosts uh, if, you, if you want to respond to us, uh, always interested in hearing from you on social media, go to Butch's Place, the best years uh, of our lives gathering area on Facebook. Uh, look for Butch's Place out there and also on Spotify at The Best Minutes. Check with us back here uh, next time on The Best Minutes.
1: About that, but she's taking off soon.
2: Right. Thanks. Come on, Taylor.